0: Welcome to Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi, a passionate and relentless pursuit of exploring how individuals use good judgment in everyday life, both in their personal and professional lives. Hello, welcome to another episode of Wisdom Personified, Conversations with Dudum Somi. I am sure you are enjoying this series, I've been getting such positive feedback from you. Thank you so much for subscribing. I am very ecstatic, you see I usually say excited, this time ecstatic, <laughs> because I'm speaking to one of the most, most favourite, best human beings I've ever met in the world. His name is William Leach. He is the co-founder of the Leach Partnership and he is based in Sydney, Australia. So you can imagine what time we are recording this. William, how are you?
1: I'm awake.
0: <laughs> Thank you so much for staying awake. Uh, I'm so happy to be having this conversation. Um, Likewise. We had the session uh, in Corporate Governance Masterclass with uh, your wife, Sagi Talish. And I said I need to interview both of you. And he said, you know, the way you speak about William, I really think you two should have a conversation. (laughs) So I thought I'll start off. (laughs) Um, You know, I've had the privilege of visiting your childhood home, uh, but for the sake of our audience, tell us just about your upbringing. I know you have a twin. Um, What did you both get up to? What did you do for fun when you were young?
1: Uh, we, we played a lot of sport. So I, I was born on a farm in Norfolk, which is a county in the United Kingdom. And I am the equal youngest, actually not quite, because my brother's five minutes younger than me. So he's the youngest, really, of five boys. And we were all brought up on a, on a farm. And um, we used to just muck around on the farm, drive tractors and old cars. And um, then for fun, we did a lot of sport and particularly my twin brother and I very competitive.
0: I love that relationship of twins. I must say I've come across many twins in my lifetime. Hmm, interesting. Um, Did you have a vision for your life? And has it come to pass?
1: No, no, would be the the quick answer. Really? Yeah, I didn't. I was clueless. Uh, Even to the point of I, I chose exams. The exams I chose to do at school were to become an architect. Then I decided I wouldn't become an architect and went and studied engineering. Then I dropped out of engineering and studied education. And then eventually I went to business school and studied advertising and loved it. And of course, the rest is history. And that's where you and I met through that career. But I didn't have a vision. I didn't have a vision for my life or my career. I just...
0: And what do you say to young people? Because I mean, I'm mentoring quite a number of them and they are totally depressed by the idea that they don't know what they want to do with their lives.
1: Oh, no, I think they're in one of the most wonderful times not to know because uh, there there are so many options, there are so many choices. So if they don't know, they mustn't worry about it, they mustn't stress about it, they've got to try and fail. That's, you know, one of the great things that we can all do is try stuff and and learn through our failure and then try something else. And, you know, that that, that happened to me before I had then a very, very incredibly enjoyable and successful 25 years in advertising.
0: Can't imagine you. I can imagine you being an architect, but an engineer, I don't know.
1: No, nor could the other engineer.
0: <laughs> so I'm, I'm, I'm happy you found your way to this industry. Um, but what's truly important in your life? What is the most important thing in your life?
1: Uh, it, it's family, Didi. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure it's family, and it's always been family, and it's been family to the extent that even when I'm at work and and uh, working in the advertising agencies I have all around the world, that I, I want that same feel, that same family, that same sense of commitment. My family's very strong, um, even though we're all boys, we love each other, we cuddle each other, and we look out for each other in a really, really big way. And that, I think that's something that perhaps I've carried through into business as well. Um, but yeah, it's really important.
0: Yeah, and it's amazing how seamlessly you weaved family into your work life so that even us as your colleagues got to know your family i I don't know if it was just the privilege of a few uh, but um and i think maybe that's also informed how i lived because my mother used to come to the office remember and uh (laughs) because yeah and 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 I remember the one image I have, which I'll never forget, how I used to sometimes wear tackies and uh, shoes with shoelaces, and then they will become undone. And I used to just walk around and you should find me in the passage and kneel down and tie my shoelaces. I think one time my mom saw that image and she just like, how is this guy the CEO, (laughs) you know? It was just that amazing uh humanity and humility that you had uh, but also weaved within your family you know having met your brothers your mother um yeah i think that's why i became almost like an integrated person because i saw it in life that you can weave your work and career and 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 not live in compartments i think you were one of the first role models for that for me
1: thank you yeah and i still i still do it yeah, it's, it's not unusual for me to be here working at this time of night. Um, and it gives me the time to maybe go and pick the boys up from school during the day or something like that. So it's perfectly possible to, to, to weave the two things together. And we should because it's, it's, it's valuable to be able to uh, commit to both. Yeah. And I-
0: so uh, in that context, I'm thinking what is your unique value proposition? If you are not here tomorrow, what will we miss about you?
1: I, I thought a little bit about that, and I think what it is is um, creating the environment for people to succeed. That's what I really, really thrive on. I love it. I love, you know, creating the environment. It could be it can be the physical environment, but certainly the psychological and safe environment for people to excel and and give them the space to do that. But I, I think that would be it, if if there's anything in my value proposition. It's been consistent, it's always been create the environment in which other people can succeed. And often people who are smarter than me and, and brighter than me, but perhaps on their own couldn't create that environment and couldn't find their space.
0: Yeah. And you're very confident in that. The thing is, you usually are the smartest in the room, but you always re- you always receive the rest of us as though we have a lot of value to add. So there was never any competition. You know, sometimes you get into environments where people are trying to outdo each other. Um, You know, working my first career, I understood that I had very intelligent human beings around me. I was very accomplished. But you never felt inadequate, and you never felt shy to share what you brought into the space. And I think it came from you, because... I think you were very comfortable in your skin. And we all knew you were intelligent, but you didn't throw it around.
1: Maybe I was the only one that didn't think I was.
0: (laughs) But sometimes people that don't think they're intelligent, then are intimidated by those that are intelligent.
1: Uh, Yeah, no, I didn't think that either. I loved people who were intelligent, people who were smart. And and it's great, and it's good to have them in the room, and it's good to um, give them the space to... To, to give their knowledge. One of the things that I've always, I always thought when I was working was um, that I was very comfortable to make the ultimate decision, whatever that was. Um, but I was also comfortable to seek a lot of advice in doing that. And sometimes I had to say, you know, thank you. I really appreciate that advice. Now I, I've just got to go away and work it all out and I'll come back and tell you what I'm gonna do. And it might not be something that you want me to do. It may not be yeah. something that makes you comfortable but uh, um, but it's never worried me collecting that information and, and listening to smart people.
0: It's amazing. I think you have a leadership book in your armour that you need to release to the world because I think you did all these things instinctively. Uh, but you came to South Africa, I think, in 1994 at the dawn of our new country. Um, what did you see about us um, and in us as South Africans that we don't seem to see in ourselves that could bring prosperity and truly create a better life for all, um, not just for some of us because a number of us have prospered in the new South Africa, but a lot of us have not been able to.
1: Yeah. I, I, what I saw was um, resilience and forgiveness, which were just remarkable and th- at the time that I was there, and, and probably some people, so some people having that sense of forgiveness when they probably shouldn 't have done like they uh, uh, they were the people who needed forgiving rather than trying to forgive other people. but I think obviously Mandela was there at the time, and um, he led from the front in in that area where he would just say, "Look, I accept what happened. I drew a line in the sand you know and he was a very resilient individual, and that combination of being able to forgive others for their flaws or to forgive others for the way they behaved or forgive others for their pack mentality or whatever it was, um, is is something that is within many, 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 many people in South Africa. Um, and that resilience, you know, the, the, the hope that it will be better and the commitment to trying to make it better. And I think that... Um, If it can continue and if people don't keep trying to undermine it, then South Africa can become a very, very important country globally.
0: And I think that's sad that sometimes we thought it was just for 94 and that we're not carrying that resilience and that sense of um, being a miracle country further, you know. I I agree,
1: yeah. I mean, I was really fortunate in that I went into – Uh, Two countries at times of enormous change. So before I'd been in Budapest in 1989 and 1990. And so I I actually got there in time to watch the last Russian tanks leaving Budapest and and set up an agency there. And, um, you know, it is a time of hope and it is a time of change. And it's it's wonderful to be able to be there and to feel that energy. Uh, And it probably is quite difficult to sustain it, I imagine. Over a long period.
0: But uh, then I met you in 1995 when you were recruiting an account executive to work on the Pepsi account. Um, You really seemed to make an effort over the years that we worked together to learn about who I am and gave me space to use my talents and my instincts rather than making me fit a job description. What made you choose me and why did you lead me the way you did?
1: That's interesting, isn't it, that you see it that way. And, and when I hear it from you, I can say, well, maybe it was, I don't know. I think I, I chose you because you were different. Um, you were really, really smart, a little bit quirky, uh, not at all backward about coming forward. And I think it was really important for our agency at the time to have people like that. I think there were, you, you never had a, you never certainly gave the impression that you didn't deserve to be there. And that was really important to me. That was, you know, I didn't want people who thought they were there because of the color of their skin or because we were trying to give them an opportunity and and you didn't. So you were on the front foot all at the time which was really good. Uh, You were quite happy to question me which I thought was wonderful because you were a newcomer and you were a recent graduate. Uh, And I really enjoyed that. And then what happened is that again, coming back to this thing of creating the environment in which the best people can thrive. You just loved that. The more space I gave you, the more you, you loved it, the more you took, the more you performed and uh, did our agency proud. I mean, it was just fantastic. And uh, what you also did is inspire other people because you were there doing that, taking advantage and other people would see that that was okay to do. Now, I do remember that when I arrived in the agency and I I imagine it was probably true for South Africa as a whole but in the agency in particular it was quite paternalistic and I remember that people would wait for me to talk all the time and I didn't want that you know I I, we needed to change and we needed to learn and we needed to move and we couldn't do that if I was the only person saying what we were going to do yeah Um, so uh, you were great.
0: Well, thank you. Um, Yeah, I suppose my parents can take some of the credits that I was just always made to feel like I'm equal to any other human being, you know, so I didn't have to apologise for my skin, which I think a lot of us tend to do, or for the gender that we come in. Um, As a managing director uh, of such and such in South Africa, you were in your early 30s, how did you develop your leadership instincts? I mean, I keep on saying that there is a book in you because it just seemed to happen so naturally for somebody that young. Um, I mean, how did you know how to lead an agency, not only to transform its culture, but its demographics, but also the perception of the brand because such and in South Africa was seen as very conservative, which is, was in contrast to the international image of Saatchi.
1: Yeah, it, it it was instinctive. It really it genuinely was. I mean, I don't, there wasn't a map. I don't think there was a a specific way um, of leading that. You and I shared a mentor in Suomadizeh and uh, that was really helpful to me because he had a perspective that was incredibly different um, and he'd been around for a very long time to, to to get that perspective. So in terms of the culture and in terms of trying to drive the changes in demographics and get younger people in there. He always gave me a lot of support. So, yeah. so that was pretty good. Uh, and and that probably, you mentioned it a little earlier, um, humility. And the you may have thought that I was really smart. I wasn't so sure. And therefore, I would check in and I would ask and I would collect information and collate information. And then in the areas that I was really confident, for example, in creativity and servicing um, international clients that were coming into South Africa at the time. I was really confident in that. That was bread and butter to me. So that part was really easy. And that gave me plenty of time to concentrate on the other part.
0: This is why I know that wisdom doesn't always come with age. Um, And I'm hoping through this series, I'm gonna start proving it because I do see young people and I have met young people and you were young at 30 something running an agency. I mean, even to have been sent to Hungary to open up a new agency, um, it just, there's just this wisdom that you've always had. But what do you wish you had known as a, a young leader that in retrospect you wish you would have done differently?
1: I think due to now that I have recognized the value of empathy more as um, kind of a tool in the leadership toolbox, if you want to call it that. Um, I wasn't, I think when I was young, that's, and that's one of the things probably from being young, um, that I wasn't as empathetic as I could have been. Um, it was kind of, follow me, come on lads, going over the hill and everyone needs to come. And um, I, I was less empathetic. But I got taught a really, really good lesson. We had one young account executive when you and I were working together, and she was really good, Afrikaans lady, uh, really talented, really young. She'd only been out of university for a couple of years, and she was underperforming. And the more she underperformed, the more I was trying to encourage her and get her, and then that she just underperformed even more. And eventually, um, through talking with Saw and a little bit of external help, we discovered that um, during the period of time she'd been working for us, she had become the sole breadwinner for her family. And that put her under enormous pressure. And so when I was, what I thought was encouraging her to be good, because I hadn't worked out that part, I hadn't shown that empathy to get her to feel she could, reveal that to me uh, and reveal that that was holding it back so the the more that I kind of said but you're so good you should be able to do this and you should be able to do that she took it almost as criticism because she was so scared of losing her job so that 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 would have been it i think if i if i'd been that little bit smarter i'd have been that little bit more empathetic and listened to
0: and yeah. understood
1: some of the people i worked with more
0: i think i can visualize i don't remember her name but i think i know who that was I remember um and I don't know if you are not empathetic I remember Sangeeta and I used to have quite a challenge with some of the individuals in the agency and you called both of us and you told us to take the high road <laughs> we had to take the high road and both she and I went to the loo and we cried <laughs> we cried we were like, we are sick and tired of taking the high road. Why can't you see that? We are, you know, that these people are not giving us a fair chance and blah, blah, blah. But uh, but we then said we will never be in this spot again. We will never make anybody make us cry. But what we did is, and was to kind of integrate, to say, okay, he's telling us to take the high road. We don't think we should be, but can we find a middle ground? So sometimes when somebody's lacking empathy they're actually just pushing us into outside of our comfort zone just to you know yeah so i think we yeah. learned to kind of say yeah that was an interesting learning so i have these incidences that i, I can never uh forget and that was one of them i was like never again uh will we cry like this again but that was a good one <laughs> What's the most courageous decision you've ever taken as a business leader uh, so far? And what drove you to that decision?
1: I think it was probably the risk of going to Budapest to run an agency. So Sanchez had already identified a local person who was going to... Um, uh, a hung- Hungarian, who was going yeah. to kind of be my partner. And, and he was already out there and found an office and things. But, um, you know, going behind the Iron Curtain going into a place like that, it, it it could have been really disastrous and it could have been a really big step backwards. And in actual fact, it turned out not to be at all. So if I look back, I go, well, it wasn't that courageous, but it probably was. But it was this. Um, I love change. I love being in places that are dynamic and change and evolving. And um, I love moving countries. I lived in Frankfurt. I lived in Budapest. I've lived in Australia, obviously in South Africa as well as the UK. Um, yeah. And you know, I thrive on that. So it was a, it was kind of a brave move, in a way. And it was um, pretty much a startup. There was there was this other chap and a creative director and me and a couple of locals, um, and we had no idea whether it was going to be successful or not. So, um, yeah, I think that was probably one of the bravest things. And, and the other one really was um, something that you've mentioned to me, which is the changing our agency and um, yeah. getting, getting some outside help to give me some guidance on that. And I remember what I did was I made a promise to everybody that when that outside help reported back, that I would hear it at the same time as everybody else. I think that was probably quite brave to turn out okay. But it, if it didn't, it would have been yeah. really, really hard.
0: Yeah. Um, and now when you're talking about that, uh, you had tasked me to help lead the employment equity efforts um, at Sachi and Saatchi. And we then arranged a launch in the garage where the entire agency was invited to commit to a new path of being non-sexist, non-racist. We had a new vision and values as such and such worldwide. And my strategy uh, was always to integrate that, that uh, you can't have pockets of of initiatives. One of the executives, which was the financial director, refused to commit and you asked him to leave. And I remember the entire room was just in shock. Um, In fact, he then decided to resign uh, at that moment. What wisdom can you share with leaders who are leading large scale change efforts in their organizations? What are the non-negotiables in your view?
1: You do need, I think, Um, a sense of commitment, so if if you stand up there, so it's not as if what we said we wanted to do with the agency was something that we hadn't asked everyone about, but it goes back to something I said earlier. You can ask and you can get somebody's opinion, but you may later choose to disagree with that opinion, and that's okay, and you have to be able to do that. Equally, you have to allow those people to get off the bus, You know, that's quite an important thing to do. Uh, And it's something that I learned when I was out there um, uh, working with you was um, that one of the most important things in change management is to give 99% of your focus to the people who will drive the change, not split it to the people who are against the change. And so the fact that the finance director stood up and said that doesn't necessarily suit me, then I was probably being helpful to him to say, well, then go away, you know, if, because it won't suit everybody. When you're going through this change, it doesn't suit everybody. Um, yeah. I, I think in our case it suited a great many people, but it didn't suit everybody. And quite, He, he was just one of the first of a few, you may remember, yeah. who left. And yeah. in all instances, we helped them to leave. So we help them through uh, purchasing their shares if they've been shareholders, um, and, and finding alternative um, work for them and things like that. So, you know, they didn't have to leave on bad terms. Um, but I think if, if I'm if I'm thinking about the advice I would give to people who are doing that change is once you've consulted, once you've Got opinion that you've got from internal and external. Once you set a direction, and once a bunch of people are fired up for going in that direction, then don't let people get in the way. Yeah. You know? And and don't oil squeaky wheels. Yes.
0: And I think part of why transformation hasn't taken root in South Africa is exactly that we give a lot of airtime to the people that are against things than the people that are for things. And we use the people that are against things as an excuse to sabotage the entire process. So I think that is an amazing lesson um, of the non-negotiables that need to be um, communicated to everybody. Um, You then chose to make Sydney your home. But I must tell everybody watching that you had two weddings in South Africa. <laughs> That's how much you love us. Pinda Game Reserve, one of the most magical um, weekends ever, uh, where we, you booked out the entire reserve um, and the family was there. And then Avianto as well in Middlestift. Why did you choose not to settle in South Africa?
1: It was um, part partly an economic and partly a change decision. So I loved it. I absolutely loved being there. But if I had stayed there for very much longer, I probably wouldn't have had the choice of being able to move on and being able to go somewhere else. And I didn't think I'd finished with my, the things that I wanted to do and the places I wanted to go and and the, the, the career. So from a career point of view, You know, I was, uh, by then I was CEO of Saatchi Saatchi for the whole of Africa. Um, So that was pretty good. There wasn't, I wasn't going to grow enormously from that position. Um, So that was a career restriction, I guess. If I stayed, I was doing that. And and at that point I hadn't mapped that there could be something else I could do. Economically, because of um, the RAND and because I was paid locally, um, I was disadvantaging myself if I chose to return to the UK, or if I chose to, as I did in the end, come to Australia. Um, and then there was just this little sense of, um, uh, I guess, that if in the long term I was going to have a family, um, it was a more restricted upbringing than I'd had, or would be, would have been a more restricted. And I think there's probably true everywhere, but um, it was particularly true at that time in that place. So.
0: Restricted in what way?
1: Um, from the point of view that I used to see children as, you know, lots of them were mole rats. They didn't have the, the, the freedom to wander around as much as, as I'd had when I was growing up. Um, so I think particularly the idea of bringing up children in, in that environment I found a little uncomfortable, um, maybe partly it was just because it was in a city, but
0: interesting um, what do you know for sure about living that you think you have figured out to help us to lead a joyous and fulfilling life
1: I, I think I have worked it out, but I'm, I'm practicing um, generosity generosity wins everything um, and and it's i I think there's a lot of research out there that suggests that it's quite a good source of happiness and I think it probably is and so I think if you can be generous with your time if you can be generous with your um, energy if you can be generous with your skills and I've seen it I've seen it in some leaders in particular you you find those it's a bit like a tennis player when you watch really good tennis players they seem to have a lot more time to hit the ball Um, and really good leaders seem to have a lot more time to spend with you um, and, and give and they're generous with that time and so from a business context generosity I think is quite important and then in life and happiness I think it's quite important
0: Just as we're winding down uh, I, I would like to ask this one uh, what's your Achilles heel and how do you prevent it from adverse, adversely impacting other aspects of your life that make you successful
1: I think sometimes what it is is a uh, an Overly developed sense of what 's right and wrong, uh, and that can make me quite tough on people, I think sometimes, so um, you know I see things more in black and white than I necessarily would or should um, and it, and if other people don 't then operate to that same standard then i don 't see it and where it really blindsides me is in uh, politics. I, I just kind of, I just assume that everybody who is in, say, in, in our business is working to the benefit of the business and working to the benefit of everybody else in the business, but they're not, right? But because I can't possibly think that people would think like that, it becomes my Achilles heel, and it's really difficult, and it's something I had to work on, and I've been caught out on Many times in, in my career. So that's, that's probably what it is.
0: As we close off, um, what other wisdom would you like to share? If this was the last conversation, what would you want us to know?
1: I'm still learning. <laughs> if this was the last conversation, I think on my deathbed, I'll be saying it I'm still learning. I, I think if anybody uh, in business ever thinks, uh, ever gets to that point where they're not in lifelong learning, then that's time maybe to leave business and hit the golf course or something and learn a new skill over there. Um, Yeah, I think that's what I leave with. I'm even learning through this interview and and thinking about the things that we're gonna be talking about. So it's fantastic, it's really good. Um,
0: Yeah, you know what I want to just, uh, another uh, reverse before I close, the Leach Partnership, what do you guys do?
1: Uh, we are business strategists for creative, in the main, creative organisations. So we work with architects and advertising agencies, design companies, film studios. What happens is, as you know, lots of people are very good at their craft um, and they start a business based on their craft and they grow up to a certain size and then they realise they have to become business people. And um, they're not always very good at it. So uh, that's where we come in and we help them um, build their businesses, offer them this digital business advice. And that'll be in the areas of the work they do, how they do it, the people they need to hire, the structure that they need to put in place in order to grow if they want to grow, the things that they want to get from the business um, for themselves personally and then for the people in the business. So it's very broad and it's really, really good fun.
0: Yeah, but it's, it can be broad, but it seems like quite niche as well.
1: Ah, Yes. A good niche is very, very helpful. So the, the focus on creative businesses. We've every now and then we we take a step out. Um, to you know, we've tried working with a legal company once. That wasn't much fun. Um, and uh, we one place we stepped out. We worked with an engineering firm, and we're going to celebrate ten years of working with them soon. And um, so there you go. I probably am an engineer, or maybe not, because they always laugh at me. But the, the thing about that particular engineering company is that the engineers in it are very creative. Um, it's an owner-managed business and it's grown massively. We started working with them 10 years ago when they were about a $4 million business and this year they'll be about a $36 million business.
0: Wow. Wow. It's, yeah. Such growth. Yeah. Thank you so much for giving the time and for staying up.
1: It's an absolute
0: pleasure. That was another amazing episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Somi. We really enjoy having you on this journey. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Somi. Please also like, follow and subscribe to our channel and share the wisdom with your friends. I would love it. If you could rate and review as well, Wisdom Personified Conversations with Dudum Somi is also available on YouTube, Facebook Watch, Apple, and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. Enjoy the wisdom journey.